You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Hey, everyone. It's Monday night. Time for American Winer on podcastdetroit.com. Uh, I am back. My guest tonight is uh, Rolo Tomasi joining us from – are you in Reno, man? Are you joining us from Reno today? Yeah, close enough. Reno, Reno Nevada. All right, cool. Well, thanks so much for coming on. You are the uh, the author of the uh, legendary uh, Rational Mail blog and books. Mm-hmm. Um, we are going to talk about a whole lot, so uh, we'll get right into it. My first question is uh, where were you born? Where was I born? I was born in Pasadena, California in 1968. <laughs> And uh, yeah. did you grow up in uh, Southern California? Yeah, born born and raised. I I, uh, I lived in Southern California, mostly in Pasadena, but also in North Hollywood and some other par- parts of uh, Hollywood. Uh, when I got into my twenties, I ended up moving to Hollywood, uh, and then I was there until I was about twenty seven years old, and then I moved to uh, Lake Tahoe, Northern California, and then Lake Tahoe. And uh, was living in Lake Tahoe for about eight years. Then I moved to Reno for a while. Finished up my uh, my degree, my university stuff at uh, University of Nevada Reno. And uh, spent about almost nine years in Orlando, Florida, um, just working for some uh, uh, an importer exporter of uh, wine and spirits. I, I worked in uh, wine and spirits and gaming for a very long time, as far as my my professional career is concerned. Um, and then I ended up, once that company kind of divested, uh, I got a really good, um, severance package and then I decided that I wanted to come back here. So, um, a a lot of the work that I do now is, uh, promotional stuff. Um, I have, uh, ownership stake in a couple of liquor brands that, uh, was kind of like the residuals of what I did, uh, when I was in Orlando. And so I've been doing that. I've been working. Um, I mean, my real my real job, um, real job is uh, just basically doing promotional stuff for liquor brands and for gaming. Uh, for a while, I was also working on the backside of doing like uh, video poker machines and and uh, basically gambling and stuff. So, other than pornography, I've worked in probably every vice there is. Yeah, <laughs> I was about to say you've done every sort of fun. Yes, yeah, uh, so I, I have yeah. never sold drugs, but I guess <laughs> alcohol is about as close as I get. But yeah, I I, I get a I'm 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 doing okay. <laughs> well, you uh, but you you did uh, music when you were in your twenties, right? I did. Yes. Gosh. Yeah. That was a while back. Uh, you know, to, we're just talking about Hollywood. Um, probably about the time I was, well, I've, I've been playing, I play, play guitar and I play bass since I was about 14 years old, but, uh, I didn't start playing like kind of semi-professionally until I was about mm, 21, 22. And that was right on the tail end of like the, uh, the metal years of the, uh, of Hollywood in the eighties and into the early nineties. And so like right around 88 through, about 93 was when I, I, I was, that was the iteration of my life where I was a uh, semi-professional, you know, junior league rock star. So, and what kind of music was it? Was it the eighties hair metal or did you, uh, uh did well, grunge you, kill what you did? Or? Um, I'm glad, you know, nobody asks me these questions. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I played, I, I played bass while I was in, um, in uh, Los Angeles for for a very long time, I played in mostly some some. When I first started out, I started playing in some like uh, just sort of hair metal bands, I guess for lack of a better word, um, for a while. And then when that scene started kind of dissolving, I got into some alternative bands, and so I started playing in in some uh, some other bands that you would think of. You wouldn't really think of as metal bands or hard rock bands. They were really more like uh, the alternative sound, like Jane's Addiction and that kind of stuff that was going on back in the early '90s. Uh, you know, Smashing Pumpkins, 
uh, Jane's Addiction really was probably that that was a huge thing back in the back in the day, like the late '80s into the early '90s, back in uh, Los Angeles and North Hollywood areas. Um, but uh, yeah, I, that that's pretty much what I've done. I studied flamenco guitar for about six years myself, and then um, played jazz guitar for a little bit. I, I I dabble in a lot of different things, but uh, bass and bass and guitar has been my instrument for a very long time. Yeah, why well, just stop uh, mm-hmm. stop doing it then? Oh, why did I stop? I, yeah. I have stopped. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, I still play. I still play guitar. Um, I do a lot of. Uh, <laughs> and you're gonna out me here. I do a lot of uh, bumper music for some other uh, podcasts and stuff like that too. So I do a lot of my own. You know, I've got my own little home recording studio here that I do stuff on. So I, I do audio <clears throat> for in in that respect. Um, I just I, I play with friends right now. I don't do it as like sort of a a professional thing. I just do it because I love to play. Um, back in the day, I wasn't though, but I tell you that because sure as shit wasn't for the money. It was for, uh, uh, you know, getting laid pretty much was, was what it was about. And that, it's funny you should say that because that, a lot of the experiences that I had in my, my early days of, you know, my, my rock star twenties, as I call them, uh, a lot of the, the stuff that I learned, um, when it comes to like intersexual dynamics and, and game, uh, it wasn't really even called game back then. Of course, it was just like, you know, how, how well you learned how to, uh, get laid was really what it was about. Um, and then I found that, uh, I had a look and had an attitude and I was really kind of playing this character that, uh, women found very attractive and very arousing at the time. And so I had a lot of different, uh, experiences, uh, as a result of that. So, uh, you know, I could go into a, my, I learned, I basically learned how to go from being sort of this sort of beta kind of loser kid in my high school years to, uh, learning how to play the game very, very well. Uh, and I, people will say, well, you were domain dependent. Yeah, I was domain dependent. I was domain dependent on the clubs and, and doing what I was doing. And, you know, I, back then I didn't know this, but I had a lot of social proof because I was playing in some, you know, fairly well-known bands at the time. And, uh, was just, you know, I was just who I was and just doing what I was doing, uh, and not really planning or doing anything. Yeah. I didn't have any plans for the future or anything like that. And as a result, I, I paid a price for that too. So, uh, yeah, you mentioned I, on the, on the blog that you've been both alpha and beta. In oh yeah. Drug, yeah. That's, there. that's the thing I, I always kind of have to. Yeah, especially after having like three books out and having written in the manosphere for as long as I have, uh, I kind of have to talk people down from the ledge sometimes because they think that, you know, oh, it's Rolo Tomasi. He's got to be this, you know, he's this alpha guy who's been married for 22 years and, you know, he's got a kid and he's, he's been through all this and he's done. I mean, I, I can speak to a lot of different situations, um, but I, you know, I've gone through a lot of different iterations of myself uh, over the years. Um, back when I was, of course, in high school and stuff, I was anything but alpha. I was very, very much beta and very much trying, you know, very supplicative supplicative i think is what the word is uh for you know for women and for girls at the time and i i based a lot of my dis- very bad decisions on uh what i now recognize as sort of my blue pill upbringing and my blue pill conditioning uh and then after a really bad breakup at one point i decided that i didn't want to do that anymore and i i started focusing on myself and i actually for the first time in my life right around the time i was about 21 22 uh i started making myself my own mental point of origin and what what I mean by that is I, I started, you know, caring more about myself and supporting myself and doing what I wanted to do than trying to be this, you know, perfect boyfriend or this perfect, you know, uh, the, the potential perfect boyfriend or the potential perfect guy for a, a woman. And I, I uh, you know, I allowed women to come to me rather than me go to women. And I found that it, it worked out a whole lot better for me. But 
that's when I kind of went into sort of a more alpha phase when I was in my in my musician years. Uh, and then I ran into a woman who had borderline personality disorder, and she was everything I ever wanted to to get involved with, uh, particularly back then because she was blonde, she was beautiful, had great big boobs and, you know, was fun to be with, but she was crazy in bed and crazy out of bed. And I, so, and, you know, consequently I spent about three and a half, almost four years, uh, trying to figure her out and being brought really to the pit of misery for myself. Uh, and just really going from being this kind of happy go lucky alpha guy to being this very beta, very needy, almost, you know, almost gamma omega, whatever you want to call it. Um, kind of guy who was just, you know, borderline ready to, to, to off myself because I couldn't figure out how to solve the problem. And then, you know, fortunately just through kind of circumstances, we ended up breaking up and that's when I kind of came to my senses and, uh, I, I turned into the guy that uh, I would become later on. Uh, I decided to be not as non-exclusive and spin plates as much as I wanted to, uh, back in, you know, in my late twenties. And I did that for, Probably another couple of years before I met my wife or the woman who would become my wife. And she was actually one plate uh, amongst probably about three or four other girls I was seeing at the time. And it just worked out. And we can talk about that later on. But that's that's kind of like the the background. Anyways, I, I can speak to a lot of different things. You know, I can speak to, to betas. I can speak to alphas. I can speak to guys who have gone through uh, really bad situations with their, uh, you know, with psychology and psychological disorders for women and stuff like that. And you, know, if you had a psycho girlfriend, I can probably speak to that too. But, uh, and then parenting and everything else too. So it's, uh, I, I've got, I've got quite a, a depth of experience to draw on. Well, when did you first get involved with the manosphere then? Like, cause I know you're, you're, you say that so suave was kind of the genesis of your, mm-hmm. your, your mm-hmm. um, you know, it's funny cause I, I, I could rewind it even past or before so suave, but, um, like I can remember back in, I think it was in 2001, I started listening to a guy called Tom Likas. I don't know if you're familiar with Tom Likas, but he used to have a terrestrial radio show and he was very outspoken. He was very, he was probably ahead of his time, I think, when it came to like red pill ideas and stuff. I, I, you know, since then he has kind of gone just to being doing digital podcasts and stuff like that. I think he's supposedly retiring this year, but a lot of the stuff that I, I, when I first kind of woke up, I guess, uh, I was listening to Tom Likas and then I started, um, I started participating in this forum that was called SoSwav, and SoSwav is still around too. I, I think a lot of people think SoSwav is sort of this newer kind of form. It's not. It's been around since at least 2001, 2002. And uh, I just started having these conversations with guys and, and just bouncing ideas off of them. And it was about the same time that I was going back to school. And uh, as a result of my my being a moderator, which because I finally became a moderator at uh, at SoSwav, um, and as a result of that, I uh, I decided that I wanted to double major when I was in college. So I have a I have a bachelor of fine arts and I have a bachelor of science in uh, behavioral psychology now, and I did that um, primarily. I did that because I needed some sort of idea of how to deal with my clients because I was getting into being an art director and being a graphic designer and doing freelance uh, freelance advertising and brand management and stuff like that. And I really wanted to be able to sort of, you know, have a better grasp of who I was dealing with when I was when I was dealing with clients. But then that sort of transitioned over into what I was talking about and what I was getting into with the guys on SoSwav. And uh, so it, 
So it was kind of like a combination of all of these conversations and this aggregate of uh, men's experiences from all over the world about, you know, what would later be uh, the manosphere. Uh, and, you know, we just talked about intersexual dynamics and common problems and common misunderstandings. And it was about this time I was also doing peer counseling with a lot of guys um, at the university I was going to. And um, most of the, the the men that I was doing counseling with um, as part of my my university education uh, were guys who were in their probably like 40s, 50s, some of even into their 60s and dealing with these really bad long-term relationships. And uh, so I kind of got it from both ends. I got guy, I, I was talking to guys on, on SoSwav who could have been like 14 or 15 years old and they wanted to know how do I get my girlfriend back. And then I would talk to guys who were 65 years old and who were going through a really ugly divorce and just crying in my lab asking me, you know, what do I do? I'll do anything. She just has to tell me what I have to do. I, I love her so much. I, you know, I'll do anything, you know, and of course that was what is, was the problem for these yeah. guys is that they would actually do anything. Uh, and so through so suave and my experience at the, in, in behavioral psychology and doing peer counseling, that kind of led to, um, pretty much a lot of the the conversations that we were having it was it was really great because i i think uh sosov was kind of like this test bed for um for ideas that would later become uh like blog posts that i put on on my blog and i really resisted creating a blog back in the day because i was really set on having this back and forth. I liked having the the um you know I, I like to have people tell me if I was like if they thought I was wrong. I, I wanted them to say, hey, you know, tell me tell me why I'm wrong here. And I would throw out these ideas and we would just kind of batter them back and forth until we came to kind of these principles or these, you know, what we kind of take for granted right now is just sort of the basics of red pill, you know, 101 or uh, understanding intersexual dynamics. And I didn't really want to do a blog, but people kept saying, you know, there's this guy Roosh and there's this guy Royce and, and you, your stuff is at least as good as their stuff. And you really need to put it out there because more and more people need this and they need to understand this. And so I basically took some of the best conversations that I had on SoSwav, and then I fleshed them out into like full-blown uh, blog posts and essays. And then I realized that these weren't really even blog posts anymore. They were really like I, I, maybe just uh, maybe overdeveloped uh, essays is what they what they ended up becoming. And I started taking a lot of these ideas and then comparing them against what I was seeing, like for guys who were doing pickup and game, you know, pickup artistry or game and um, understanding the psychological principles behind why the things that like, say, Mystery Method or, or Neil Strath, you know, like if you've ever read the, the book, The Game, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. I always wanted to know why that stuff worked. You know, why, why does uh, cocky funny work? Why does peacocking work? Why does, uh, why do neg hits work? And that was really kind of what started me down the path of trying to make the connections between the psychological and really the sociological in why guys would do the things that they did. And I just sort of connect dots. I mean, if you've read the first book, I mean, that's the first thing I say in the introduction is like, I'm just a guy who has has the ability to articulate a lot of uh, a lot of ideas that I think a lot of guys already think of to begin with. And so I I put that all together in the Rational Mail which by the way uh, back in August I've been going for 7 years now. And um then right around 2013 um I had a I had a female uh reader hit me up and say you really need to make this a book because my son needs to hear this stuff. 
and he's never going to believe me or he's never going to understand this if it's just from a blog or if it's from the internet. Because, of course, you know, it's the internet. You can get anything you want to on the internet. But right. you've got a book in your hand and, you know, you're flipping pages. That has more legitimacy than, say, um, you know, than, than just seeing something on Twitter or see some, you know, something on, on a blog post. So, so I took what I thought was the core principles of what I had written for, you know, last four or five years, really more like. 10 years, if you can, if you count the, the so suave years. And I put them together in the rational mail, the first book, the rational mail. And I honestly thought that that would be the first and probably only book I would ever write. And, and I, I kind of, I, I knew, and I mean, I was a graphic designer, right? So I, I knew enough about how to put a book together and how to go about, you know, self-publishing it and doing e-publications. And, and then I didn't, then I realized I needed to get a, an audible version of it. And so like today, you've got to have three things. You've got to have an audible book. You've got to have the uh, e-book, like the Kindle book, and then you've got to have a print print version. Back then, all I cared about was the print version because I was just—I thought that was the most important thing was to get a, a print version into people's hands. And then it sort of expanded from there. And as a result, unfortunately, um, I took a lot of the the best that I thought uh, what the Rational Mail was back then, and I pieced them together and I tried to put it in as coherent and you know as much of a flow as I thought. And I I, I still to this day kind of look at the rational mail as kind of like this rule book, you know, and then all the other books that I've written are kind of like the supplements from that rule. So you have to understand the rules before you can add on to it. So before you can like look at the supplements that I've written, which of course is the pre is preventive medicine, which is my second book. And then my third book, which came out a year ago is uh, uh, positive masculinity. Uh, but in the first book, I was trying to set forth the the rules and put as much into it as I can and then as a result I I kind of made the the font a little bit too small and I was trying to keep it under 300 pages because I wanted to keep the price of the book really low I wasn't it wasn't something I was going to go okay I'm going to be a writer and make a lot of money I, that wasn't that's was never been my my motive it was just to put that information and put the message out there and as a result it, it kind of became the book that I think everybody wanted to read uh, when I read the game, I was really kind of hoping it was going to be the Bible for the manosphere. Like it was going to be like the Bible for the red pill or pickup artist. And, I mean, and even if you look at the print version of that book, uh, Neil Strauss even tried to make it look like a Bible. Yeah. You know, it's got the, it's got the leaf in it, you know, gold leaf in it. And it looks like a, the cover of like a holy Bible and, and it's got like a, a ribbon in it. So you can like put it where, you know, you know, for your bookmark or something yeah. like that. And I thought that was kind of cool, but then you look inside of it and then the book is like really more like entertainment. It's just, yeah, it's just his story yeah, it's of just how, entertainment. He, how he yeah. delved into the pickup artist world. Yeah. I mean, but, occasionally he might get into some, some little bit as to, you know, here's why cocky funny works. Right. And, but it was not what I wanted. It was just sort of this story. And it was good. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I liked the, I liked the game, but it wasn't the book that I wanted to read. And so I decided that I needed to write the book that I thought I wanted to read. And so that's why I wrote The Rational Mail and put it together. And um, and I'm probably going to end up doing a second edition of it. And not, not, none of the content will change. It's just that I, I kind of need to make it, a, you know, make the font size a little bit bigger. And I'm, I got to adjust for some of the grammar. And, you know, because remember, these were all old blog posts that I turned into chapters for a book. So, uh, but in the time that I published it, which was in 2013 up to where we are now, it'll be five years, uh, actually next month, uh, that I, I, I put it out 2013, October 1st. And, uh, and it's, it's really become 
the go-to book for the manosphere. It's become the go-to, you know, here's the basics. Here's the the things that you need to understand if you want to understand the difference between like a red pill awareness and being in your blue pill conditioning. If you want to understand what hypergamy is all about, if you want to understand, you know, basic intersexual dynamics, if you want to understand why feminism is the way it is, if you want to understand why we're in a uh, a feminine primary social order today, here's your book. Here's what you need to understand. And here's, and you know what? I'm, I'm still all ears. If people want to tell me I'm full of shit, that's fine. Just let me know and, and, and tell me why. But, uh, that book and has sort of spawned a new like version of myself. You know, I've, I've become Rolo Tomasi. And, uh, so now I'm doing, you know, I've got a fourth book that I'm working on. I'm going, I'm getting into, uh, uh, religion and how the red pill interacts and how intersexual dynamics, uh, interact with religion. And, uh, and then I've been doing the red man group for a while. Um, I do a, a regular, um, hour with a terrestrial radio show every Friday. Um, and so, you know, at this stage of my life, uh, I'm, I mean, I'm still working, I'm still doing what I do, but, you know, professionally, but, uh, this has, you know, I'm an author now, I'm an author of three books now. And so I've kind of turned into, uh, you know, it's not something I had planned. It's not like I said, okay, I'm going to set out to be real Tomasi. I, I just, it's just how it happened. And it's just what I've been doing. And I'm glad it has, because it's been a hell of a ride. And, and I thank everybody every day, you know, especially when I got guys that hit me up and they say, oh, dude, you just saved my life. You know, I mean, there's not a week that goes by that I don't get an email or, or a tweet or a, a DM from somebody who says, man, you know, I, gosh, I mean, last year we were at the, uh, the 21 convention. It was the first time I ever showed my face on video because I I've tried to stay as anonymous as I possibly can. But I had a guy come up to me and said, I came to this event just to see you and just to talk to you face to face and let you know that I was going to kill myself. Like I had a date planned. I was setting up my insurance so the kids wouldn't have to worry about me being gone. I was trying to make it as convenient, you know, and, and just so nobody would miss me once I was gone. And I just couldn't understand what was going on. And then somebody turned me onto your book and I canceled my plans to kill myself. And that's, that's a real cold bucket of reality, right, <laughs> you know, right. to get thrown in your face. And so it's, at that point, I was just like, okay, I guess this is what I'm going to do. Well, and so I, that, that's what I've been doing. I, I think that, you know, you mentioned the, the game. I think that was kind of the, the, the genesis, at least for me, of like, I had, that was my first introduction to game and, re, and what would become red pill culture and all the yeah. rest of that. The, your book was definitely the, uh, the second wave of that. Because that mm-hmm. was the game was the getting people interested. Yours was the the nuts and bolts of it. And here's why on a biological level this stuff works and why it makes yeah. sense. So and it it came out and I think I think what I did sort of came out at the right time because it was right about the time when evolutionary psychology started taking off or it started to be taken a little bit more since you know ser- seriously. Uh, I mean, there's like Evo Psych's been around for a long time, but until the internet came out and until we had like the research that we have right now and just understanding the, uh, you know, that there's so much involved in, in evolutionary psychology from like, you know, anthropology, sociology, all this other stuff. And it, it's really kind of, uh, I don't know what I do and what I, what I've come to, uh, really write about, I guess there's so many different disciplines that I have to like really 
really be on top of. And evolutionary psychology was just kind of coming out when I uh, when I was uh, when I started writing, and I got into it a little bit more. I mean, when I was in university, I I became familiar with uh, the works of Dr. Marty Hasselton and David Buss and and Gangstad, and so that kind of filtered over into what I was what I was writing as well. And so, and people always like say, "Oh, you don't cite any sources." I'm like, "No, I cite sources a lot. You just had you." You just need to go and look for them. I mean, you just need to go and look look at the books and look at the research and look at what I'm writing about, and you'll understand what I'm talking about. Well, that, that was one of my questions, which is uh, mm-hmm. how much of your research is like science based, and how much is just observation based? You know, like from talking. To people? I would say, I would say at least a third to a half of what I talk about is science based. And people are probably scoffing right now. They're going, "What the hell?" But I I I do a lot of research and I put that or I, I drag that over into my kind of theories or my hypothesis for certain things. And remember, I'm I'm a connector of dots. Uh, I I have a really kind of a a really frustrating relationship with guys like uh, uh, Steven Pinker or even um, Jordan Peterson or uh, Dr. Warren Farrell. These are guys who have a lot of book smarts. These are the guys who have, excuse me, they have all of this all of this information, all this empirical information that's just sitting in their laps, particularly Steven Pinker, because this is the guy that wrote the, you know, uh, the blank slate, you know, and they're basically destroying the idea of the blank slate. And yet this is the guy who still wants to identify as being a feminist. And he will go into excruciating detail about the differences, uh, biological, psychological, neurological, you know, hormonal differences between men and women, uh, between all of the sociological differences in like the choices that we make are, are, you know, how we're predisposed to certain gender roles and stuff like that. But then yet at the end of his discussion, it's like, but I'm still a feminist. I'm like, where in the hell is this all this coming from? Well, now I realize that in academia today, if you don't toe that line, you don't have a career anymore. Right. And I think that maybe that's maybe that's his case right there. But it's like then I'll listen to somebody like uh, Jordan Peterson. And Jordan Peterson was talking about like dominance hierarchies. You know, he's very very famous for talking about dominance hierarchies, particularly amongst men. And I agree 100% with that. But the problem is, is then once he gets into this, once he starts talking about marriage and once he starts talking about his, the one-itis that he had for his, uh, some little girl when he was seven years old who later became his wife, uh, and, you, and you listen to how he, you know, engages in, you know, personally in his own marriage, you can see that there is no dominance hierarchy in marriage. It's like all, it's all about dominance hierarchies. Until you get married, and then you just abdicate all all notions of dominance hierarchies. And I think if I was to ever be able to sit down one on one with him, I would, that's the first question I would say: is, is Are there dominance hierarchies within the state of marriage, or between men and women? And we, we already know that there's dominance hierarchies amongst men. Is it between men and women? What happens then? And I, I don't think that that's something he's really comfortable with with really talking about or recognizing right now. Um, well, simply because he's got his hands full with other stuff. So, well, you heard him on. Uh, he he actually went into it on uh, when he was on Joe Rogan earlier this summer. Yes. Did you hear about yes. that? I, I'll tell you the other thing. I I saw that I saw that uh, the second one, the, the most recent one. I think it was what it was, and he was talking. He's talked about this on several occasions. But what I find really interesting is I have if you go on Google right now and you type in the the word hypergamy. If you look past the wiki and you look past the Urban Dictionary, you will find my site is the number one return for hypergamy. I don't think right. anybody on the internet has written more about hypergamy than I have. And 
one of the things that I was always raked over the coals for is that people would say you're not using hypergamy in the right sense or in the right definition because people who want to kind of call me to the carpet or want to say that I'm wrong about something, they, they want to get literal. They want to say, well, here's the definition or the, the dictionary definition of this is X, Y, and Z, right? And so they'll say, well, you know, according to sociology, hypergamy only means the tendency for women to want to marry up in a socioeconomic respect, right? And that's it. They don't want to. They don't want to talk about ovulatory shift. They don't want to talk about uh, the biological implications of hypergamy. They don't want to talk about uh, dominance hierarchies. They don't want to talk about any of the the stuff that goes along with hypergamy or why even hypergamy would exist in the first place. But they want to basically just hold your feet to the fire and say, well, you're just not using the, the, the definition correctly. And so, for at least the last six or seven years, I have been fighting to sort of broaden the definition of hypergamy to mean something more than just what the definition in the dictionary said or what sociology decided that it was going to be. And so, of course, I mean, if, you, if you've seen any of my work, if you read any of my books, if you've seen my, uh, my last year's talk at the 21 convention, uh, I did a, a talk called Hypergamy Micro to Macro, where I kind of break down everything from the smallest, mo- you know, the biological aspects of hypergamy, which is women's ovulatory cycles, to the social implications of hypergamy, which is where we find ourselves now with feminism and a lot of other things. So there's a there's a lot, there's a very broad, very complex spectrum of what hypergamy is actually defined as. So when I listened to Peterson talking to Joe Rogan and referring to hypergamy from the definition that I have been trying to put together and trying to make a standardized definition and and trying to broaden the definition of the word hypergamy and to have him use that it makes me think that he's been reading some of my stuff or I, I can't imagine he hasn't tried to google the word hypergamy and not come across my own work yeah, because a lot textbook. of the stuff that he was talking about with joe rogan is exactly almost verbatim what i've been trying to get as the broader definition of hypergamy for a yeah, long time. It was. So I know he's aware of me and I know he's aware of the stuff that I've done. And people say, well, you're being really full of yourself right now, aren't you, Rolo? And I'm like, yes, I am actually, because I have busted my ass to, to redefine that and to broaden the definition of that. So we have a, you know, we get into a, we get into a lot of trouble, I think, in the manosphere because we use terms like alpha and beta. And people think, oh, well, you guys just think that you're, uh, you're, you're, silverback gorillas or your your wolves on the you know the tundra or something like that it's like no that is exactly not what it is it's just a placeholder term and what they don't understand is that when we use terms in the manosphere or in the red pill or whatever intersexual dynamics we use those terms as placeholder terms they are placeholder terms for ideas they are abstractions they are not any belief that we are in some way you know, comparable to, you know, gorillas or, you know, chimpanzees or whatever. It's, it's simply alpha in terms of what an alpha would be to human beings. What is hypergamy to human beings? What is beta to human beings, usually human males? Okay. It's, it's what, what are those definitions? I think as the manosphere is still evolving and still developing, we really need to understand that, we can change those terms and we can use them They're Like I said, their words are basically just abstractions for concepts. And that's what, that's what these are. And so when I hear a guy like even Joe Rogan really recognizing, you know, hypergamy in the definition that I've been trying to, to standardize for a long time, like I said, it, it sort of makes me believe that, that the, this, the manosphere, the red pill, at least what I've been talking about is starting to get 
to a wider audience. Well, where do you see uh, like Western society in five to 10 years or in the manosphere for that matter, uh, in terms of, uh, of your research? I'm, I'm, gl- I'm glad you asked because um, I'm writing, I'm currently writing right now a, a, a about a 90 minute talk for the 21 convention uh, coming up in October here. And my, uh, my topic is sort of like a, a state of the manosphere address. And uh, I'm doing a, <laughs> I'm doing a SWOT assessment of the manosphere right now. And I, if you understand what SWOT is, it's strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And it's like what what uh, what businesses will do when they're trying to you know develop a new business plan or de- you know try to decide where they're going. And so I think it's kind of applicable to the to the manosphere right now. And I I see where do I see the manosphere going right now? Um, I really think that it can reach a broader audience. I think we can reach more people. Um, I think we can reach more guys. In fact, I think that m- the idea of men being blue pill conditioned is going to be something that is going to be either very, very in overly, almost exaggeratedly enforced on younger men in, in the next generation. I mean, I'm not even talking millennials. I'm talking the generation that's coming after the millennials. Right, the Zoomers. Um, yeah. And I'm just, I'm thinking like, how are these guys, you know, I, I pretty much, I hate to say, it, I, I'm pretty much given up on millennials as far as, you know, trying to, to awaken them or trying to give, you know, give them some sort of red pill awareness. I mean, I hope that some of them can, but I'm really hopeful about the, the generation that's after that. Um, I think that the biggest thing or the biggest threat that we need to watch out for right now is exactly what Roosh is going through with his, uh, his, uh, uh, being having you know basically being blackballed from Amazon and Barnes and Noble and basically being erased, and I can see a lot. I can see a potential for a lot of people, maybe even myself, as being erased in the uh, in the digital landscape in the future in the coming times, simply because um, social justice and feminism and the leftist powers that be, however you want to define them. They own the game and you have to play. If you were going to play the game, you're going to play by their rules and you're going to do whatever they want you to do. Uh, and if you're not, then you're going to have to go and redesign some platform for yourself. I think plat- uh, the, I would say probably within the next two to five years, it's going to be imperative that anyone in the manosphere is going to have to find some kind of alternative platform where they – can still put their put their views out, and they can still have some sort of uh, global reach, I guess. Um, because you're going to see, um, I think you're going to see a lot of social media, certainly Twitter, Facebook, all the big ones, um, Amazon, um, what you call it, YouTube for sure. They're already doing it. I th- if you want, if you think that the censorship is bad now. Just give it another couple of years. Uh, people are saying, well, it's because of the uh, the midterm elections. Yeah, but the thing is, is like this sort of crackdown or this, you know, this purge that they're calling it right now. Um, they're saying it's just for the midterms. I, I, I still think it's an illustration. It's sort of like stretch or it's, it's like flexing their muscles. Like this is what we can do to you if we want to. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's sending a message when you, and I don't have anything good to say about Alex Jones. I mean, I, whatever, you know, he is who he is, but the fact that they can erase him within a 24 hour, you know, span is kind of scary. 
And I was talking to Anthony Johnson, the guy who's the organizer for the uh, the 21 convention. He was we, we were talking about this. And I said, you know where the big money is going to be in the next two to five years? It's going to be creating alternative media companies. It's going to be in creating uh, alternative platforms that have the reach of a YouTube or have the reach of, you know, uh, I mean, you look at the look at Amazon right now. Amazon owns like 86 percent of the self-publishing market right now. So essentially they own the speech. They own free speech. And it's not that they can't. It's not that they own free speech. It's that they own the means for distributing that. So do you even exist if they don't publish you? Can you even do anything? I mean, they're, they're fantastic. I, mean, I wouldn't be where I am today if it weren't for, uh, you know, digital print on demand self-publishing. You know, I'm, I'm glad for that. But I think it's very scary that a lot of that power is in the hands of one very big multinational monopoly right now. And so it's like people will say, well, you know, you, they don't have to sell your book. You know, you still have free speech. You can say whatever the hell you want. Right. But uh, can I? Because I, I would never be able to to I mean, imagine me trying to get the, the rational mail past a, uh, a traditional publishing house. And even then, if I did get it on through a, a traditional publishing house, I would still have to go through Amazon to sell it. Uh, so I, I think that, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of caveats in in what we think of as free speech. I've never been like this big free speech advocate or anything. I mean, I've just I've followed along as well as anybody else, I suppose, because I mean that's just what I'm about. I'm, I'm hoping that my free speech will be respected, but I can't say that that's a guarantee. You know, they say free, you know, freedom isn't free. Okay, well, yeah, it's not a guarantee right now that that any of this is going to be sustainable. And so, what are we going to do? What's the alternative? To go back to what we had before, to go back to, you know, sticking our heads in the sand and pretending that you know uh, feminism is all great and uh, pretending that uh, you know that Me Too is actually about you know uh, anything other than the politics of personal destruction. You know, where where do we go from there? When 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 I'm erased, when Roosh is erased, when you know God knows who else you know is. I mean, even a, even a Jordan Peterson. When is he, when he's erased? Then what? Then where do we go from there? So I, I think that that's probably one of the biggest threats right now um, facing uh, the manosphere is platforming and finding some way, a reliable platform where where we can be relatively ensured that our voices are still going to be heard. Um, I think the strengths of the manosphere are fantastic right now uh, because we have the largest global consortium of men relating with one another that we've never had before. I was just getting into a conversation this morning about what it was like in the 1990s. And we were talking about like the, the TV show Friends and how like Ross was like this complete, you know, utter beta. And he, like none of the guys on that show were even really all that. You know, they were all ridiculous, of course, because that's just how they did it in sitcoms back then. I still do today. But, you know, we had this, if you, if you look at them as masculine archetypes for the, for the decade that was the 90s, and you look at that and you go, my God, I can't believe, you know, you look at that with a, what I call a red pill perspective or a red pill lens. You look at that and you go, God, I can't believe all of this shit went on back in the day. But we were just completely ignorant of it because we didn't have forums. We didn't have a so suave. We didn't have a, a alt fast seduction. We didn't have even really Twitter. We didn't have any, any connection to other guys so that we could sort of, you know, collectively compare notes. And so I would say since you know the early 2000s, we have all been able to come together and compare those notes and just, and say, okay, here's here's what it's like in, in uh, Mumbai, and here's what it's like in South Africa, and here's what it's like in China, and here's what it's like you know all over the world, and 
that's one of the the strengths I really think, particularly when it comes to uh, understanding, you know, intersexual dynamics and what we call the red pill, is because a lot of the the stuff that we we all kind of come together and share notes of it's it's all the same story. It's all this, you know, there there's still the same collective uh, goals. There's still the same, uh, you know, ideas. There's still the same uh, blue pill conditioning, just in in different ways. Or you know, there are there's going to be cultural and ethnic and uh, you know, just basic social uh, variations of that. But it's still based on a common frame, and it's still ba- you know, humans are humans, men are men, and women are women, no matter where you are. Okay, I mean, it, the 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 context might change. Uh, the culture might change, but uh, hypergamy and sexual strategies and and you know uh, a man's burden of performance, all that stuff doesn't change through society. It's just how it's how it's reflected, how it's manifested. So I think right now the biggest strength that the manosphere has is that we there there's more and more of us, and we're we're all sort of coming and and making this collective, you know, aha moment you know we're like oh my gosh you know i i can't you know most of the guys most of the guys who read the rational mail the first thing they tell me is i always knew this stuff but i never was able to put it into words exactly and so when somebody tells me that i go yeah because we're all coming together and we're all you know they're giving me these dots to connect and i connect the dots i'm just good at articulating it i'm not even i I think we're probably going to talk about like my you know my my career as a writer, who, who I think I am as a writer, but I'll tell you, I think uh, beyond writing is really just having these ideas and 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 then connecting these dots and just making sort of these rational connections. And that's why I call it the rational male, um, because well, I think that there's a pragmatism to it and there's a practicality to it, and it it really involves participation and everybody's participation. Any guy, I don't care what political stripe you are, what religion you are, I don't care if you're homosexual. Your experience as a man can contribute to, you know, the gestalt of what the manosphere is. Well, uh, believe it or not, man, we are out of time. But uh, thank you so much <laughs> for, uh, for for coming on. This has been no awesome. Uh, hang on the line uh, after we go off the air and I'll give you a proper goodbye. But thank you so much for coming on, Rollo Tomasi. Sure, sure. It's been not great. Um, so uh, I will be back uh, next week. Uh, this has been American Winer on PodcastDetroit.com.